Hey Dan Talks listeners, welcome to another episode of Dan Talks. This week I am talking to Trey Burnett, who is a writer and photographer who lives in Palm Springs, California. I came across Trey's work via an article that he wrote for NBC News, a think piece titled The 2022 New Year Doesn't Have to Be the Moment You Forget About Your Grief, about how when we make New Year's resolutions, they're usually to forgive or forget or to start something anew, but that grief is something that is a constant process and stays with us. So this episode will cap off the what has become a three-part mini-series on grief, and I hope that it's been helpful for people who are going through grieving processes, and um, even if you're not necessarily right now, all of us certainly will at some point. So um, if anything, they're great episodes to come back to and return to. Uh, Trey is a delight to speak with, and I hope that you're doing well. I hope you had a great Valentine's Day. Whether you're loving someone else or loving yourself, I hope that it was full of love and cheap candy, and uh, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Trey Burnett. So Trey, I was so inspired to see your piece in NBC News. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Of course. Tell me what it was like to write it and pitch it and to see it up there? Well, you know, it happened very quickly because I have uh, been focusing on literary reviews and those take months just to get a response. So I wrote it, I sent it out, and I want to say within two days I had that response. Um, The editor was out ill so it took like two days longer and then you know I would say it was about it was a night of edits and a morning of okaying the edits and then we were done and then it came out it was actually supposed to come out on January 2nd but they moved it up to their feature piece for the first of the year so that was exciting um yeah it was really great um I had not use my education to focus on that type of writing when I was in my master's program. I focused on memoir writing, like for book style writing, and I focus on screenwriting. So I had actually come out of school and I was getting really nice responses from people about my writing, but then there was a caveat of, but this isn't what we do. So I took like three classes from people, Susan Shapiro, Carrie Egan, and R.O. Kwan. And their classes were geared toward uh, writing essays and pitching essays for those types of publications, which really helped me. So when I actually got something, I was happy because I felt like what I had, the classes I had taken were actually beneficial because sometimes you take things and you sort of think, I'm not sure if I learned anything, but I did learn something and I was able to apply it. So it was very rewarding. And I got, you know, some, like I would call it reader response or fan mail, which was very nice to hear from people. You have no idea who they are about your writing and non-writers so, you know, we're always so focused on people in the literary community 
but um, getting feedback from people who just want to read readers um, from the general public was, it was nice and it was, um, I don't want to say refreshing, but it was enlightening to hear what a reader picks up on as opposed to someone who is doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And you write a lot of about heavy things in this article, in this essay. What did it feel like to share things that were so vulnerable on such a popular platform? Um, for me, I mean, I'm human. So of course I had my reservations or, you know, my anxieties or fears, but that's just my life. And I have always been open about it. I uh, came out when I was 16. I started public speaking for an organization called uh, PFLAG. As an adult, I started public speaking about homophobia uh, for an organization called Glide. And um, I've been in the newspaper before as a teenager and a young adult, um, just by accident, um, about serious topics. So it was, you know, it's always scary, but I felt like I had control of it because I was the writer. And, um, you know, my book that I've written and I'm querying my memoir is very heavy as well. It deals with a lot of issues that people don't want to talk about, um, you know, that maybe they feel shame for, for some reason. And I've always sort of felt like, okay with putting myself out there. So for me, it was comfortable and validating, but I'm not going to say it was like totally comfortable because I am human. Um, but I had a very supportive editor, a very supportive, uh, very supportive editor. And I could tell how she was responding to everything. So she made me feel safer. And like we were on the right path. And the essay is all about grief and how it stays with you and that we all make these resolutions at the turn of the year and try to be happier and have a positive outlook. But you write really poignantly about losing your mother and how that's something that you will always carry with you. That grief is a, something that never just goes away. Where are you at now with your grief in this stage of your life and even today? In the state of my life, you know, I lost my grandmother actually in two parts. Um, I lost her first in 2013. I'm trying to get these dates right. 2013 in a legal battle with one of her daughters, my, uh, my family's sort of had to go to court with this, uh, her, one of her daughters, um, cause she was doing some n- not nice things. And we did lose that. It was one of those weird, like skirting the law things. And I didn't have any more money to push forward and there were no guarantees. And then she passed away three years later and no one in my family saw my grandmother except the aunt that had custody of her and her daughter for those three years. So I sort of lost her in 
two stages. And it was like losing my mom in a way, but it was a slower process. So I think those were the two most important people in my life. And because I moved away from either my family is deceased or they're out there and I don't speak to them because they, they live unhealthy lives. And, and that aunt had some levels of homophobia that played into everything that went on. Um, so I think I've taken control of my life from an early age and especially as an adult. So, you know, there are things where, I look at like my partner's family or friend's family and I see like, oh, I don't have that. And I haven't had a lot of that for most of my life. And it's sad, but I also just sort of accept it. And it makes me compartmentalize or uh, evaluate what I do have and what is good and you know, and how I've uh, created my own life. So there is a sadness there, but I think it is, there's some reprieve to it because I've been able to put myself in positions where I can make the best of it. Mm -hmm. So, and it's, you know, and I still have sadness, like things pop up. I spoke to my youngest aunt the other day and she kind of mentioned some stuff and it, triggers some old memories and it's a it's a bittersweet thing because there's part of you that like when I get news that's unsettling you know it's like I'm thankful that I'm not involved in that anymore and I am also sad that those people are continuing those cycles of behavior and but I know like I can't be involved in that because it's worse the involvement in those those behaviors is worse than having the sadness of being removed or not having someone in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and like I said, you, if once you sort of accept the way things are, you can say, okay, so if this is where I am, how can I make this situation that I have more fulfilling? And um, so that's kind of where I am today. I'm like, you know, I'm kind of having a hard day, but it's not necessarily about my mom. It's, I think it's things that have been triggered and I'm sure it's in there. Um, but, you know, I'm doing some constructive things to get my mind off of that. And, you know, and I think that's what it is. And I never, I had stopped putting expectations on myself to be happy and just know, like, you know, if I'm sad, that's okay. And I'm going to look and see what, what, where that sadness is coming from. And I know that it will pass because, you know, life is a cycle of everything, like the physical and the emotional, there's ups and downs. And I just go, okay, let's see what's going on and let's get through, I'll, I'll get through this. And maybe there's some practical steps I can take to move forward or maybe I just need to sit with it and it will pass. Like, you know, it'll just naturally organically, I'll go through what I need to. And, um, you know, so that's what I do. And of course, writing helps, or I'm also do photography and, you know, that photography is even less heady than writing. 
you know, cause it's so visual and it's instinctual and it's just, you know, so you can, I can get out of my head really easily with photography. Mm-hmm. You wrote uh, that you have a whole life now that your life is whole. And before that you wrote about your attempt to take your own life the year after your mom died mm-hmm. when you were 17 she died when you were 16. You attempted to take your own life when you were 17. Could you not imagine the life you have now when you were that age? I would say yes, but probably not in the way that it looks. You know, I think where I was at 17 was... um, I felt defeated and I felt powerless. You know, I felt like I never felt like a victim per se, but, you know, my mother left my biological father when I was like before three, before I was three years old and he was not a good guy. And he actually went to prison um, after my mom divorced him. So, and then, you know, as a kid, you're sort of at the will of your parents and I sort of was also not just felt like I had no control over certain aspects of my life, but I was also in a position because I was still a kid, even at 16, 17, is still a child and you're not fully developed. I didn't have the tools to process everything that was going on. You know, I had come from a family where there was obviously a lot of trauma. There was a lot of hits. There was this uh, generational abuse. My mother had severe depression and she was physically sick. So it wasn't, it was sort of like, I don't want to say pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move forward, but there was sort of this, uh, if we don't talk about it, we can make it better, which as an adult, I know it's really not a healthy way to do it. My mother was in therapy and she was trying to do it, but there was never like a sit down. And I mean, I did go to her therapist a couple of times, but I was really good at pretending I was okay. Um, but there was never this uh, focus on how is this affecting everyone else, which I think is pretty common. I'm not vilifying anyone. I think that when people are in those situations, they're doing the best they can. And maybe they don't have the ability to say like, we need to really address like the residual uh, ripple effect of what's going on with like the main person who's having the issues, you know, it's sort of like the caretaker also gets sick. So as an adult, you know, I do have that control, you know, I have that control to judge like how I can take care of myself and also who's in my life and not in my life, which gives me that control. I, I didn't have as a child. So, and I luckily I never self-medicated after that, like with drugs or that was like a one time thing. Cause I knew how to do it from my mom. You know, most of my coping was done in actually healthy ways. So like by doing well in school or, but I was numb for many years. And now when I say I have a whole life, it's like, if I'm happy, I can feel my happiness. If I am sad, I can feel my sadness. 
you know, I don't live in this state of numbness where it's just pretending that things are okay or not okay. You know what I mean? I don't. So that's when I say I have a whole life. It's like I'm experiencing life inside and out, which I think is important to do for everyone. I was also curious about you coming out two weeks after your mother passed away. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that was in some ways to protect your mother or where, where did that come from? You think? Well, I, you know, my mother was very loving and, um, you know, I had never heard her make a homophobic remark and actually just before she died, she, we were having lunch and this is in my memoir, And I had said something and she's like, you know, there's nothing that would make me not love you. There's nothing you could be or do something along those lines. And um, I knew she knew, like, you know, it was obvious. Like I was an obviously gay child, which I'm okay with. Um, I mean, she bought me dolls when I was four and five years old. It was like no problem for her. And um but I knew she was sick and I knew that before she divorced my stepfather, you know, he would have had issues with it because he had issues with me not being a stereotypical boy. So I thought I can hold this in because if I come out now, it's one more stressor for her to deal with. Even if she accepts me and loves me, there's still a process that she's going to have to go through to come to terms with it even if she's accepting and she's going to have to deal with other people. And when she passed away, she was on the upswing of her health. She was getting better and she was actually enrolled in graduate school. Um, So I thought, let's just stabilize our life and then I'll do it. Um, But once she died, I didn't know how to like deal with the loss of her and keep hiding because I wasn't hiding very well, but I think it was also, you know, it was a way for me to, I can't bring my mom back. I have no control over that, but this is something that I can take control over and operate from a different point, a different spot. Like if people are already harassing me for being gay, I'm dealing with the bullying and being in the closet. If I come out, at least I'm in control of my identity. And I say, yes, I am. Now, if you want to bully me, it's on my terms. So I think that's what it was. It was sort of like an emotional stress relief. Mm-hmm. Like, here's something I have control over. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's one reason I had to do it and wanted to do it. So, and I did, I do have a, my eldest aunt is gay. And, you know, it was never really talked about good or bad and actually had asked my mother when I was 15, you know, why has she never remarried? And my sister, who is five years older than me, said, because she's gay. And I was like, oh, well, I wondered, but no one ever said anything. And my sister was laughing, but it was more laughing at the fact that I didn't know this than it wasn't, she was laughing at my aunt for being gay. And then that was kind of the end of the conversation. So I knew that there was not really a big problem with my aunt being gay. So it wasn't like I was going to, I mean, there was some homophobia from my aunt who was my guardian, 
but it was kind of that she wasn't going to throw me out of the house, you know? Mm-hmm. So is there part of you that wishes your mom could have known that part of you and like talked about it with you rather than it just being implied thing? Like, do you feel like there was a part of yourself that you didn't get to share with your mom that you wish you could have? Yeah. Yes. I would say yes. So um, I wouldn't say it's a big regret because I felt like she saw me already. Um, I think um, what it is more is like, I know she was worried and I think there's that part of you that just wants to say like, I'm good. Like, I think there's that. Like, I know my mother thought she had done a lot of things wrong. So it'd be nice just to relieve her of that and say, it's good. It sounds like she did so many things right. Yes, and I think that's what it would be. It's it's not so much for me to say, like, oh, I got to tell my mom I'm gay. It would be more like, you don't have to be so hard on yourself. You don't have to worry. Um, you did well. So I think it's more of the general, what a lot of maybe parents worry about is, like, Oh, did I, did I mess my kid up or was I a bad parent? And it's just to say like, no, you weren't like you did well. Thank you. What would she think of your partner? I mean, she would like my partner. I mean, my partner's a very uh, kind and like loving and intelligent person. And you know, everyone I know likes him. So, you know, so I think she would be good. <laughs> so. <clears throat> do you yeah. feel like, so, do, you, do you still um, have conversations with her? Um, I wouldn't say that. I would just say, I, I, I mean, you still, like, I still have, like, I mean, I have a very good memory anyway. Um, so, you know, I just have a lot of, I don't want to say flashbacks, you know, or, you know, I do have a, you know, I think 
like anyone, it's like you have that question of like, maybe you're doing something and, you know, you think, oh, I wonder, I wonder how this would have turned out if my mom was still alive, because if she was still alive, if she wouldn't have died, you know, she would have gone through graduate school. And like one thing I did was I went to cosmetology school. I moved to Los Angeles and went to the Vidal Sassoon Academy because I had to figure out a way to pay for college. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I would have gone to cosmetology school had she been alive. You know, like, not, she was a teacher and she was going to get her master's degree in, t- in uh, teaching and uh, special ed. She had been an ESL teacher. So it wasn't like she was going to, you know, she didn't make a ton of money, like, but I thought like, oh, what I had staying, cl- I did stay close because of my grandmother. I went to USC in Los Angeles. So I was only an hour away from my grandmother. Um, but I think about that stuff, like what, what, what path would I had gone down if I didn't like go to hair school to figure out how to pay for college? Like if I had more assistance, would I had just worked at a restaurant or the bookstore or something like that while I went through school? So, I mean, I think there's more wondering like that. And, you know, and I wouldn't say like, yeah, I think I don't really have conversations. I just have like sort of memories and like wonder, wonder about how things would have been. So. What is it like to write a memoir? Um. Well, I think, you know, I, I wrote it after I had done a lot of therapy and processing of life. So for me, it was cathartic in certain ways. And I could look at it more objectively as a writer. Um, And I really kind of had come to a place where I understood, like, in my memoir, why I'm why I'm using certain memories in it. Um, So it was definitely a good experience. I had great professors. I worked with Deanne Stillman, Emily Rapp Black, and David Eulen. And, um, you know, I'm querying it, and then hopefully I'll write another one about different topics. But, you know, it it was nice because, like, with my article that came out in on NBC and then I had another essay just before that come out in a literary journal, you know, I got feedback from people that said, wow, thank you. I felt like you were just talking to me or writing for me. And, you know, that's really rewarding as a writer because, and a person, because not only do you know there's someone out there who shared a similar experience with you, then you, with you, as you did, and, or had the same emotional life, maybe it played out physically different. Um, but also, as a writer, you're like, oh, wow. And I'm able to communicate that in a way where people can experience it themselves and maybe make some progress in like their healing you know or come to terms with whatever they're trying to process like through 
someone else's experience. Cause I think a lot of, a lot of traumatic experiences, people feel alone when a lot of the stuff that we go through is much more common than we acknowledge. The title of the memoir is I hear you're funny. Uh huh. What is the role of humor? <laughs> well, um, I tend to enjoy humor. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, told I'm funny. And I think that to me, when you can laugh about something, it doesn't mean it's not painful. It just means that you've come to terms with it and you can look at it from different perspectives. And it also means that, you know, you're going to be all right. Um, it's sort of, you know, like after you fall down, like you trip or you walk into a glass, you know, door, like there's that moment where you're in shock and you might be in a little pain. And then you just realize like, there's an absurdity to it, but you know, you're okay and you can laugh and move forward. So I think to me, humor and laughter is very healing. And I think that when you have something that is painful and when you come to that acceptance of it, knowing you're going to be okay, it makes the humor richer. Um, The title of the book is actually because I was born in Memphis. After my mom died, my biological father contacted me. And that was the first thing he, once I figured out who he was, that was the first thing I, he said to me was, I hear you're funny, which in the South means I hear you're gay. I, gay is funny. And I, I realized he was saying, oh, I hear you're gay now. And I'm thinking, you haven't spoken to me since I was about four. When I was four, he took me on a drug run, and that was the last I had of him. He went to prison. Uh, my mom died, who was his, you know, his ex-wife, the mother of his child, who he used to beat. And the one thing you're concerned about is this son you don't know. You're concerned that he's gay, and you're trying to humiliate him for it. So after he said, I hear you're funny... I, my response was, well, actually I'm hilarious. And I just, I hung up on him and that was basically the last time I ever talked to him. Um, so, you know, even in that situation, you know, I was like, oh my God, this guy is such a jerk. And I just gave him a witty retort. So, you know, and it's I'm not that, you know, I think humor is a defense mechanism and it's also a healing mechanism. So there you go. But that's what that means. It's like, I, I use that title. It's a working title. Who knows if it'll, if it'll stick because of that conversation, but also because there, even though my book is heavier, there's a lot of humor uh, sprinkled through it. Um, it's just, that's my voice. And, uh, it's also, it, it deals with that. It's like one way to deal with this pain is finding the humor in these situations. Any, so. Anything you would say to somebody who might feel uh, feelings of hopelessness? 
I'm trying to say something that's not like cliche. I would, you know, I would say, you know, reach out to someone, you know, reach out to someone that you think might be in a situation similar or has survived a situation that's similar, or maybe you need to, someone needs to reach out to a stranger because they just feel that it's safer to do that. You know, I don't, I know that feeling of hopelessness. And I think, you know, the first thing that you do when you're in that is like, you say, like, I feel hopeless. I feel sad. I feel like this isn't going to end. And then once you kind of like hear yourself say that, you know, I, I hope that the next thing they would tell themselves is, but it's not. And this really is only temporary and I'm going to get through it. And it, it's not, might not be easy. It might not, I might not be through it tomorrow, but I'm going to get through it because I know there's something, there's going to be joy along the way when I get through this or waiting for me. And then when something else comes along and I feel hopeless again, I know I got through it before and I'm going to get through it again and I'm going to enjoy those moments in between that. So I guess that's what I would tell the person, you know, you know, acknowledge how you feel, reach out to someone and just not just, but, and move forward and don't force yourself to move forward at a pace that's uncomfortable. You know, if you need to be sad, you need to be sad, but you know, every situation, even happy times are temporary. So take that and say, yes, sad times come, but they don't always stay. And maybe they, maybe they're there, but there will be other things going on alongside of them. Trey, thank you for Uh your writing and thank you for coming on. Well, thank you. Thank you for reaching out. I appreciate it.